standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this episode of The Sunday Chops. We've actually got two episodes of Chops for you today because we are pretty good to you like that. And in the other episode, you can hear Mick catching up with Bianca Robinson, CEO of CEO Sleepout, to talk about getting big businesses to help with people on the streets, the reality of rough sleeping and how we can all do our bits. Also in the same episode, Mick and Hannah catch up with Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, fire officer and psychologist, author of The Heat of the Moment and ambassador for The Big Issue about the time she spent living on the streets as a teenager and the dangers facing rough sleepers all year round. Another excellent listen, and so I suggest you get yourself over there after you've finished listening to this. But in this episode, I am chatting to writer and author of the new book, My Name is Monster, Katie Hale, which I'm not going to tell you what it's about because she's literally about to just do that. But we have a chat about political binfires, strong female leads and societal ideas around motherhood and femininity. She is very interesting. Also, I should just say, we recorded this in the hotel that Katie was staying in, and there was a dog involved who got right into it and had a lot to say for himself. Soz for that. I mean, I would say listen out for him, but you will hear him. Enough about that. Here's Katie. I hope you enjoy. I'm joined by Katie Hale, author of the new book, My Name is Monster. Katie, hi. Hi. So, Katie, do you want to tell us a little bit about the book? Uh, yeah, so My Name is Monster is a novel about a woman who believes that she's the last person left alive on Earth, and then she finds a girl. So it's quite loosely based on Robinson Crusoe. It's a female modern retelling of the story, where the island, rather than being a, a tropical desert island, is essentially Great Britain. To believe that you're the last person left alive on Earth probably requires some sort of arrogance and some sort of confidence or or belief in your own purpose in life that is maybe slightly skewed. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she is an unreliable narrator in many ways um, and has a slightly different view of her own life than is maybe factual. But she, uh, she does find this girl who forces her to reassess her entire place within the world and who she is and what she is and exactly what has happened. Very intriguing. So it's it's interesting what you said about the the confidence that she has or arrogance that she has, and we'll come back to that a bit. But is so it's basically a, a sort of dystopian nightmare. And first of all, I wanted to know what inspired you to write a dystopian nightmare right now. Was it in any way inspired by what's happening in the bin fire that is occurring around us globally? Yes. <laughs> it's probably impossible to not be inspired, terrified whatever word you want to use, by the kind of everything that's happening at the moment, whether that's the, the eco-crisis, whether it's a political binfire. Yeah, all of that fed into the writing of the novel. But I think originally it's actually, it came from somewhere before everything really started to go to hell in a handcart. I had the idea for the novel about, about eight or nine years ago, really, and sort of sat on it and didn't really do anything with it. I think I felt that I shouldn't write fiction because I was a poet and I put myself into this kind of poetry box and told myself that I could only do one thing. It, it was really only recently that when everything started to, to go wrong that actually I, I felt the real push to write, to write the novel. I mean, I started the book in autumn 2016, which may or may not be a coincidence that that was, uh, yeah, when uh, a certain person was uh, elected president of a certain country. What aspects of that in particular inspired you? I think there's a lot of fear 
around about divisiveness and how divided we are as a population, not just in this country, I think globally there I think political divisions are becoming much more entrenched and part of this I think is to do with policy and uh, kind of party politics that are being played out but part of it I think is also to do with social media and how we uh, interact with people in in echo chambers um, and the fact that we are becoming more insular I suppose within our our own political views um, and who we engage with and I think anything that produces that sort of divisiveness yeah I found that very frightening and I found it frightening how quick people were and still are to lash out and how it feels that there's this dissatisfaction bubbling under the surface but from everybody nobody is happy with the way that anything is going and that just just feels like a melting pot that it's it's leading to something I don't know how do how do you diffuse that kind of energy and I you know I hope there's a way that isn't the way that it it happens in the book I hope you know we don't end up in a post-apocalyptic society anytime soon but who knows Um, (laughs) it's quite interesting that you've mentioned the echo chamber because obviously a lot of her journey or for the first part of the book her journey is solitary she's sort of fairly self-reliant from a very young age she sort of has to learn the value of other people in a way and it takes being on her own to do that was that a metaphor for the echo chamber i'm not sure i was intending it as a metaphor for that but it works very well as one so thank you but i think i was interested in the idea of a female survivor we we so often get the male survivor story i mean robinson crusoe is essentially white man surviving on his own by building a shelter and it's all very kind of boy scout whereas actually the narrative that we don't get as often is is the narrative of the woman surviving and actually how does that change the survival narrative the post-apocalyptic story it's not a sort of apocalypse film where the main character is played by Will Smith. It's a very different story that I'm trying to tell and one that I think maybe speaks to a lot of conversations that are happening now that have actually become more prominent since I started writing the book. Some of those are conversations around climate and around eco-crisis, but actually conversations around gender as well and and how gender is important, whether it is important, um, and also how we identify as whatever gender we identify as. How did you try to bring that out? Monster, the the title character, is, even before everything falls apart and the society kind of breaks down, is very much a loner. And she very much struggles with identities of womanness, but also with sexuality as well and how she's supposed to identify and the kind of the boxes that society tells her to fit in. Um, And that's kind of how she defines herself she defines herself as the person who rebels against these boxes within society so then of course when society breaks down all those definitions and those boxes no longer exist the societal structures are taken away and if you define yourself purely by being the person who fights against those things and then they're not there how do you then define yourself so she then has to learn or i suppose discover how she identifies whether she she does identify as a woman what does it mean to be a woman if if you are the only person left because the whole construct of gender has has been taken away. So it's kind of also a little bit about how we're socialised. It's partly inspired by Frankenstein. Yeah, um, so I suppose Robinson Crusoe and Frankenstein are the two books that it's most inspired by. And both of them are actually quite similar in some of the themes that they deal with, I think, because both of them are about a character 
who chooses either to have or not to have responsibility over another character. Um, in the case of Robinson Crusoe, it's Crusoe, I was going to say, taking responsibility for Friday, actually enslaving Friday and claiming some sort of ownership over it purely because he can. Whereas with Frankenstein, it's the story of Dr. Frankenstein refusing responsibility for the life that he has created. Um, so both of them are quite similar in that sense. And that was something that I really wanted to explore, how we take responsibility for a life that we have in some way created or an identity we've in some way created and actually how much of ourselves we put into that other person. So, I mean, it's a, I suppose it's a book about mothering in a, in a very loose sense of the term and a book ab about how how you react as the object of that mothering as well. She has quite a complicated relationship with her mother and then she sort of becomes a mother as well. What made you want to sort of explore those themes in particular? Partly my own experiences of being a woman in my late 20s, you do start to get asked questions about family and about relationships and you do start to get this this undercurrent from people talking about biological clocks and the sort of the Bridget Jones sort of TikTok TikTok and I found that I don't know I, I find that frustrating in many ways but also interesting that this is something that society puts on you as a woman and this is an expectation and, and so I was interested to explore how that pressure to produce children, to continue society, plays into a world where there, there is no future. Society no longer exists and everything is about endings. Everything is about things coming to a stop. And if you've always been told that your role, the expectation of you is to produce children, is to continue humanity, really, how do you marry those two things? Monster, who obviously becomes mother, she is not the most sympathetic <laughs> of characters, I think it's fair to say. She's a bit prickly. It's interesting. It kind of jars a bit. You know, when you read a book or you watch a film or a play or whatever and the central character is a bit... You're not necessarily rooting for them immediately. But I think it's is more noticeable because she's a female character. What made you write her this way? Well, I suppose there are two questions there, aren't there? Are people... Are there enough complicated female characters... I think there are a lot of complicated female characters. I think a lot of female characters who are complicated are not always recognised as such. I mean, okay, if you think of Game of Thrones, well, there was a lot of fuss with Aya's character in the final season, everyone saying that she was a Mary Sue because she... I don't know if I can give away spoilers. I can, I don't Do know. it. It's been on um, telly. It's been on telly. It was ages ago. It's their fault. Um, <laughs> when, when she kills the Night King... Massive spoiler, sorry. There was a lot of talk about her being a Mary Sue and how could how could she do that? Well, actually, she spent the, the past seven seasons being trained by the most ruthless killers in the land and then you have Jon Snow riding a, a dragon having learned after approximately one minute. Um, so I think characters are held to different standards, male and female characters, and actually a lot of complications and a lot of character background within female characters is often reduced by audiences um, to fit stereotypes and to fit these kind of character labels that we have um, so I think there are a lot of, of really interesting complicated female characters but I think why I wanted to write her that way she's sort of the character who I almost wish I could be some of the ways that she reacts to things are ways that I would love to react if I weren't a afraid of confrontation uh, and b also 
if if I weren't trying to, you know, make people like me and trying to, if I had no agenda, you know, if I weren't trying to construct my own life, if if I was solely selfish, then there are ways that I, you know, there are probably things that I would like to say to people who I don't like. Um, and there are ways that I would like to react in certain situations that those inhibitions stop me from doing. If you find yourself at the Edinburgh Festival this year looking for something to do, well then look no further. Because we, Standard Issue, are putting on four events at The Stand, the best comedy club in the country, if you ask us. On August the 11th and the 12th, we have two In Conversation events where our guests include the brilliant Rosie Jones, Janet Ellis, just the Janet Ellis, Laura Lex, Gemma Kearney. I know. Probably the best thing to do is to get onto our website, www, let's do it the old way, www.standardissuepodcast.com and you will see all our live events there. You will also see the other two events that we are putting on at The Fringe, which is two stand-up nights with all female bills. They are completely brilliant. Callie Beaton and Jess Foster Q are both on at those shows and there are, in fact, loads and loads of brilliant women on at those. You will find details of those shows at that website as well. Book yourself a ticket. Come along. It will be great. But that's kind of interesting in itself, isn't it? Because so I've said, oh, you know, she's a bit super prickly. You know, if that was a male character, quite possibly I wouldn't have felt that way. So that's a, as much about like the the way the reader is socialised as as anything else. Yeah, and I think and prickly is actually one of those words that is most often used. I think about women. I literally use it about myself. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing to be either you know and certainly in in the situation that monster finds herself in she's having to survive she's literally having to strive and fight every minute to to continue her own existence so why shouldn't she be prickly why should she maintain any kind of decorum um, and even before that you know the, the sort of the pressures that she's put under to be somebody that she feels that she isn't why why should we sit back and take that what do you think it is that keeps her going is it just the instinct to survive yeah partly i think it's this instinct to survive i think we're all quite obsessed with our own mortality and i think that shows in different ways i don't think everyone i assumed until quite recently that everyone thinks a lot about death and about their own existence as a mortal being and apparently that's not true i don't know whether it's specific to writers or what but um apparently there are people who don't but i think we are all obsessed with how we continue and what we leave behind whether that's through a kind of legacy a family legacy and through children or whether it's through writing or building or or creating a, a better world whatever that might mean so i think that is something that we're all kind of obsessed with and i think monster is is just doing that in in her own way it's her own obsession is surviving and she, I mean, she's also she's very as a character is very driven by patterns so she's driven by pattern and routine and so i suppose survival really is the ultimate continuation of pattern you are continuing the pattern of your own existence but also if you believe that you're the last person left alive on earth I and mean, we've talked about the, the arrogance that that entails but also there's a sense of purpose that comes with that well i think for her her purpose is to be that that person that last person left alive on earth almost a sort of a final two fingers up to the society that she's been rebelling against her whole life you know her own ability to continue when everything else has fallen apart it becomes her new definition of herself you know she can no longer define herself as the person who rebels against social structures so she defines herself as the person who 
survives when those social structures have, have collapsed. What do you think we can learn, if anything, from Monster? Probably to say more what's in our heads. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think what I learned from her when I was writing her as a character was this, this sense of, of individuality. And it made me think a lot about who I am as a person and how I identify myself. Partly how I identify within these sort of social boxes that we've talked about and that society creates, but also partly how I choose to identify with other people, how much we need other people, how the presence of other people and the closeness of other people within our own lives affects who we are and, and how we act. I mean, and, and it's something that you notice as well when, when you talk to people who live on their own, particularly elderly people who live on their own. If you speak to them in a social setting, it's almost like they interact in a slightly different way, often are more talkative, will often tell you very banal details about their lives, almost compensating for the, the kind of the loneliness and living on their own. Certainly what I learned from writing her was just to, to think about my own my own relations to other people. I think the dog feels a bit lonely too. He's got a lot to say for himself. It's interesting, actually, because I live on my own and I do that all the time. I, like, I'll see someone and I'll be like, uh, and talk to them about Craig David for five minutes, for example. <laughs> I didn't speak to anyone that day. So, Katie, do you want to read us a little section of the book, perhaps inspired by the uh, background noise we've been experiencing <laughs> during this interview? As if by magic. Right on cue. I'm halfway down the road when I hear them behind me. A low growl and a padding of paws on the tarmac. It takes a moment to place the sound, but when I do, it sinks into me as if I had always expected to hear it. As if it had been waiting for me to dare to come home. If I had been the sort of person who placed some kind of value on proximity to other people, who gravitated towards family in their hour of need, if I had been the sort of person who cared... Then this village is where I would have died. I should have known it would not let me leave so easily. There are three of them. Old farm dogs slinking low across the ground. Farm dogs are always tough, bred for work on the unforgiving fells, but these three are something more. Shaped out of need and a fierce holding on, they are more wolf than dog now. Like me, these three are survivors. They prowl towards me in formation, eyes fixed, growls rumbling deep in their throats. The leader pulls back his lip in a snarl and the others follow him. I resist the urge to run, to let them give chase. I imagine those wet yellow teeth in my leg. I clutch my shoebox to my chest and plant my feet on the tarback, claiming my territory. I bare my own teeth. The dogs keep coming. I start to growl, a deep, feral humming at the back of my throat. For a second they pause and I growl louder. The leader steps out with one hesitant paw and I lurch forward, spare arm whirling, a sudden explosion of movement and noise. Fuck off, you bastard little shits, fuck off! There's barking. The noise is everywhere. The dogs split and scatter and I try to keep my eyes on the leader, on his jaw snapping at my calves. I try to kick out, but he's a quick dancer, and suddenly there's no noise, just a kind of wind tunnel in my head, and one thought, be bold, be bold, be bold. So I yell, I am bold. 
And as I yell, there's a pain in my left calf like a nail gun and a sudden weight and a bitch with her teeth stuck through my trousers and everything spins. My scream cuts the air and I smash the shoebox on her head with my whole body weight behind it. The bitch lets go. I can still feel the tooth grip, but she cowers and slinks and she is on me and not on me, beaten and not beaten. The other mutts continue to growl and snap and I kick out. There's a sick crack as my foot connects with the leader's snout. He whimpers and backs away, making small noises like a broken child. The others stop snapping. They look to their wounded leader. Everything hangs in the air. Then they follow him, low to the road, and away, away. I'm breathing hard. My back and underarms are soaked with sweat, my t-shirt stuck to my skin. I become aware of my heart, the undimmable batter of it. I become aware of my veins and capillaries, the blood's flood rush through them. I become aware of every part of me that is alive. And then I become aware of what is broken. Katie, your book is published by Canongate and is available in all good bookstores and online, yes? Yes, absolutely. Well, what's next for you? Have you got anything else in the pipeline? So I'm working a lot on poetry at the moment. I'm trying to find out the best way to to balance poetry and fiction and and learning more actually all the time about how the two inform one another. Um, So I'm working at the moment on a debut collection of poetry, slowly very slowly so that's kind of what i'm what i'm doing now there's always there's always more ideas than there is time in the day can we find you on the internet anywhere have you got a twitter or anything like that we can follow you on yeah absolutely my twitter handle is hail katie as in hail and hearty as in my surname and uh, yeah i've got a website and blog as well um which is hailkatie.com thank you very much thank you no thank you for having me Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixter Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Standard issue for all women.